What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Granger Smith Podcast. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for this platform. I'm grateful for my right to sit here in front of you and tell you my opinion and uh, have this platform that is that is very unique to be able to tell you stories of where I came from and stories of where I want to go and, and stories from some of my buddies. Uh, this is this is a way for me to get closer to you as a listener and as a viewer so that you could you could see a side of me that maybe you don't see just on the stage singing country music. Maybe you can get uh, to know me a little bit better. And that's the reason for this podcast. That's the reason I've done all these episodes in the past, which started on my bus, Wildflower, on tour in a parking lot of some venue. We don't do that anymore. We don't tour anymore yet. We will be touring very soon, and I say it seems like I've been saying this over and over, like beating a dead horse, but it's not a matter of if, it's when things will get back to normal. I reject the idea of the new normal, the new way of life, the new, the new way that we're going to live. That's not, that's not right. Right now, we're living in a, a, a current reality. Uh, the state of the world is very different right now, but we will return back to normal, back to the old normal. And if you don't, and if anyone tells you that we won't, if anyone is telling you that we're about to enter a new normal, then you have to question their motives. You have to wonder why they, they want you to think that way. Because to me, uh, this, is, this is a virus that eventually will go away. We will conquer it like all humans do. And whether we find a vaccine, whether we find herd immunity, whatever, whatever that might be, and no matter how long that takes, it will go away and then we'll get back to normal. That's my little spiel for the time being, and and I'm excited. I don't want to do a long intro today uh, because I have a really cool guest, and we got into some really good conversations. This episode is brought to you by Yee Yee Apparel, the apparel company that me and my brothers have right here in Central Texas, right here at the Yee Yee Farm. Thank you for all the support. If you have Yee Yee Apparel, if you if you support Yee Yee Apparel, um, we are honored, and it is a a big responsibility for me to continue to make a quality product and to give you uh, my best opinions about the world so that you could be proud to represent Yee Yee and you could be proud to be a member of Yee Yee Nation, part of an elite, elite club that, that I'm very proud of. I think it's, it's, it's something that uh, I never dreamed we could have something like this, something, something uh, that's much bigger than music, much bigger than any individual, and that's what Yee Yee is to me. Today's guest, Mike Ritland, uh, an amazing human being. Um, he is, uh, he's a vet, but he has gone above and beyond. He, he served 12 years as United States Navy SEALs, and uh, he was part of an elite canine unit. He has a special relationship with dogs, and so you've all seen uh, service dogs, and they're, they're always amazing. It's always amazing to see a service dog at work. Well, you can imagine if you've seen uh, any kind of service dog, you can imagine a United States Navy SEAL service dog would be an elite version of any other service dog you've ever seen. And that's exactly what Mike has handled. And it's what he currently does in his, uh, his post-combat work. And I want you to hear all about that. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mike Ritlin, welcome to the Granger Smith Podcast. Yee yee.
cans and diesel Mud tires and smoke Long line of four by fours Up and down an old back road Range your cold one time It's a redneck invasion Yeah, you're rocking with that key nation I think I'll start with saying that through my travels, there's a question that comes up a lot. People say, uh, besides Texas, is there a place that you've traveled to that you would actually want to live? So you need to think about like Colorado and there's, you know, those are a lot of beautiful places, but the, what I usually tell them surprises them. And I'll say Iowa. Really? Because I think about those, those rolling green hills of corn and those red barns and silos. And I've told my wife, I was like, you, you don't understand. Iowa is unbelievable. Yeah. So beautiful in its own way. It's, it's the most American state scenery yeah. that I can imagine. And that's, that's where you're from. It is. And, you know, one of the reasons why uh, I feel so at home in Texas, especially in a place like this and where my kennel facility is, is uh, it's very similar to that. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're driving down the road out in front of your place or, you know, uh, the outskirts of the town I grew up in, you, you wouldn't know which one is which, you know. So, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of commonality, I think, between uh, between Texas and Iowa in terms of not just terrain, but, uh, you know, from a demographic standpoint, the the, the morals and values of people and the way people yep. treat each other, the way people take care of their things. And there's just, there's, there's kind of a feeling of being home uh, in both places that exist. But uh, it's neat that uh, with the amount of traveling that you've done that you, you recognize that. It's pretty awesome. Awesome, man. I'm going to justice for you. Last guest I had in here was Robert Oberst. He's 6'8". So yeah, like four hours. <laughs> he didn't break the bench. So, Mike, thank you. You drove, you drove up from Dallas, three-hour trip to the EE farm. First of all, thank you uh, for driving up here. Um, thank you for your service. You have a one hell of a resume. Um, I was thinking, is there is there such thing as a former Navy SEAL or once Navy SEAL, always Navy SEAL? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, first off, I appreciate the sentiment. My pleasure. I uh, appreciate you bringing me down here. Yeah. Uh, to me, it doesn't really matter. Um, okay. You know, I, I think most people don't use the term ex-Navy SEAL, but some people do. Uh, most people say former. Okay. Um, I don't really look at it as a once a Navy SEAL, always a Navy SEAL. I mean, to me, military-wide, if you're not on active duty, you're you're a former, you know, a former action guy, as it were. Sure. Right? So, uh, you know, to me, that that's that's fine. I, I don't have a preference or or get my panties in a bunch if if somebody says X or or whatever. Gotcha. You know, so, but. so so former Navy SEAL, uh, I start with that because that is. Um, that's an elite title, no matter how you look at it. Yeah. You are, you're also multi-time best-selling author. How's it feel to hear that now? It's probably crazy, right? It's weird. Uh, you know, I, if you'd have told me 10 years ago that I'd have written a book, uh, let alone it, it made the New York Times and then written two more that did the same thing, uh, I, there's no way I'd have believed you. You know, it's a, it's a weird title for sure. It's not something that uh, comes up real often because I'm not an author in the traditional sense, like that's not what I do for a living, you know? So, uh, because I don't hear it or talk about it very often when people do bring it up, it, it still kind of strikes me as a little odd sure. uh, and feels a little weird, but, uh, sure. but it's, it's a, it's a hell of an honor. It's a neat, uh, you know, a neat group to be a part of. And, uh, and I, I feel very fortunate really. I mean, 
you know, I, I kind of stumbled into into the ability to do that, and uh, it was just kind of the right place, the right time. Uh, the Bin Laden raid had happened not long before my first book came out, and when everybody found out uh, that there was a dog on board, uh, they kind of lost their minds and were like, you know, wait, there was a dog there? Like, what was the dog? Yeah. There? You know, Navy SEALs use dogs, and so... You know, I had, I had just come back from being a, a trainer on the West Coast for the uh, SEAL Team Canine program out out there, and it was just just kind of lined up. I was at the right place at the right time. So uh, there's certainly, you know, a number of guys that have you know far more impressive resumes as it relates to everything that that probably have way more business writing a book about that than I do. But uh, but again, I just I, I kind of fell into into a, a, the right spot. Uh, right yeah. So I mean, you led me into the next part of your intro, is. Uh, your unique experience in a canine unit, an elite canine unit, and uh, that, that I've kind of taken a deep dive in you these past few days preparing for this podcast, and um, uh, you know a lot about dogs. You have a special relationship with dogs. Um, there's a lot of people that say they're they're a dog guy, yeah. But you you have dogs that have saved your life that you look at as uh, more than a canine. It, it just is as, as highly uh, touted as a soldier, a fellow yeah. man to you. Sure. Uh, I go through a lot of peanut butter, we'll put it that way. Yeah. Now the, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, for me, it's, uh, yeah, I grew up a dog guy. Being in Iowa, uh, you know, if you've spent any time other than driving through there, most people know bird dogs and, and duck hunting is huge there. Um, and so, you know, just kind of having a healthy appreciation for labs and, and just bird dogs and hunting dogs, generally speaking, growing up, that, that kind of, you know, manifested into an interest, uh, you know, early on in the early 2000s, excuse me, where I was actually on a combat deployment to Iraq where there was a, a marine dog just in the vicinity that we yep. were in. It, it wasn't even a, a dog that saved my life or any of my teammates' lives, but uh, we had been in the same scenario that... Uh, that this marine outfit had been in, you know, countless times and never had a dog with us. And, and this dog uh, indicated on an, on an explosive cache or, or booby trap, rather. And uh, for me, that was the, kind of the light switch or, you know, when, when my brain kind of clicked on of, of having an enormous interest and passion for working dogs. Up until that point, I'd, I'd done a fair bit of, uh, you know, breeding and, and hunting with dogs in, in a host of different capacities, uh, and, and had a pretty significant amount of dog knowledge from an animal husbandry standpoint, but not so much on the training side. You know? Sure. And, and so uh, that that kind of was the catalyst to to, div, uh, to dive rather really deep into the training component. And that was you know in, in early '03 at the start of the war. Uh, and then so from then up until you know as I sit here now, it's it's just been something that uh, you know I've, I've kind of lived and and uh, and have never really looked back. But. I was kind of thinking you might have, you might bring a dog today. If, if it was the winter time, I for sure <laughs> yeah, would. Have. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Probably maybe a bite suit too. We get you get you in a bite suit and do some uh, do some of that. I'm sure your fans would love that. So you have some major injuries from bites. I do. Uh, I, well, I guess I shouldn't say major. I mean, I've had uh, I've had my wrist broken, and I've had uh, you know God knows how many times where I've been bit and you know filleted open, but. Um, in terms of you know life-altering injuries, nothing. Sure. Um, I will say that you know from doing bite work a lot, um, you know being in the suit and where they're biting your elbows and forearms and and the you know inside of your bicep and you know the nerves and tendons that that are in there that get you know bit over and over and over over time for sure. Like my hands are numb most of the time; they, they don't work that well in the morning for for a while. 
uh, it's, it's absolutely taken its toll physically on me. Um, you know, there's, there's no two ways about it. Just that amount of bite pressure on, uh, on any appendage over and over. I mean, it's, it's like a boxer or a football player or, uh, you know, a catcher squatting, you know, banging his knees up. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. It's sure. just, it just runs you over after a while. So, um, but the, the thing with getting bit is, um, is an interesting thing because it's not really a natural, uh, component to life, right? Is that most people, you know, most people are, are actually pretty physically capable of, of defeating a dog, but have no idea how to do it. Uh, their mentality is such that when it's happening, they panic. It's, mm-hmm. it's very similar to people that can't swim very well and they're in the water. That, that panic mentality is usually what takes place with, with human beings when a dog is, is trying to attack them. And so you're not thinking straight, you're emotional, you're panicky, there's adrenaline and you, you do a lot of the wrong things. And so, um, you know, getting to a point where you're comfortable being bit, um, you know, plays a huge role in being a good, good dog trainer from the decoy side. But, uh, when you are in that, that frame of mind, staying calm and thinking your way through everything and getting to the point where you're minimizing damage and neutralizing the dog. And, and that's what you're thinking about, not how bad it hurts or the, the, holy shit, there's a dog biting me or, or whatever. So obviously there's a huge difference between training and, and having a padded suit on where they can't you know, hurt you nearly as much versus not having that equipment on and being bit. But and your bites were not with a suit. Yeah, I mean the the ones. There's been a couple with equipment on that the dog bit hard enough to where um, it went through the equipment and and still <laughs> still bit, uh, opened me up. That's pretty rare. Uh, most dogs don't bite that hard, but um, you know the equipment is is designed to keep you from being injured. You still feel it. You still get marked and bruised up and. Uh, and your skin gets pinched and, and broken blood vessels and things like that. But no, that like where my wrist was broken and, uh, you know, a number of other times where I've been, you know, completely opened up has been working with a dog and, and it's always my fault, you know, right. at the end of the day, it's, it's me not reading something right or putting, uh, you know, you know, trying too much too fast with a dog. I'm, I'm not, uh, t- you know, close enough with relationship wise. Uh, you know, it's usually a combination of, of a few of those things that, that leads to uh, the dog deciding, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a shot at the title and then you end up getting bit. But. And where do you neutralize a dog? I'm sure that's a huge conversation. Yeah. Like what, what what body part do you go after to neutralize a dog? It's it's actually a great question. It's one that uh, not too long ago Tim Kennedy uh, had a run in with a with a neighborhood dog. And I don't know if it was his child or a neighborhood kid. Uh, or whatever, but there was a, this huge kind of going back and forth on what he should have done or didn't do or, or whatever. And I just, I offered my advice again from somebody who has been in, in that situation more times than most people. Uh, and it's really not, not too dissimilar from a human being, right? Is that if you look at, say, the concepts of jujitsu, you know, what, what's the primary two things that, that are your goal? It's body control and take their air away. You know, just like a human being, mm. a dog that, that gets their air cut from them can't fight you. Right. Can't hurt you. Can, you know, uh, the only, you know, the, the, the main difference between dogs and humans that way is that the dog's mouth is their primary and, and really only weapon. And it's far more devastating than most human beings, anything. Right. So, um, you know, my recommendation for anybody is if they have a collar, <clears throat> you're in business. If they don't, it's harder. You can still maintain the same thing. But. Uh, if they have a collar, you know, don't pick a child up because no different than if a human being was trying to attack you, you wouldn't pick the kid up and now you're, you're hamstrung. You can't defend yourself or the child as well. So, you know, get the kid behind you, get in front of him, close the distance between the child and the dog. 
and now you're grabbing the dog. You want to get body control on the dog, grab the collar and choke them unconscious. You know, when people get bit and they start smacking the dog or gouging eyes or grabbing their ears or uh, trying to pick them up by their nuts or, or whatever, um, you know, for a tough dog that's dedicated, those things are only going to make him angrier uh, and probably more dedicated to hurt you uh, or whoever he's trying to attack. So if the dog doesn't have a collar on, <clears throat> same thing is that I want to get body control. And by body control, I put, uh, you know, gra grab the dog. If, if he doesn't have a collar, grab his skin with both hands, pull him into you and, and straddle his back hips. Uh, and then at that point, pick him up by his tail. Uh, if he has a dock tail, pick him up by his back legs right at his stifles and lift his back end up off the ground. Again, if he doesn't have a collar, if he has the collar, choke him out. If he doesn't get control of his back end, lift it up off the ground. Is, is it that way, at a minimum, he can't get back to you. Sure. Um, the hard part with that is if the dog is dedicated and, and has a hard mouth and, and is trying to hurt you and, and, is, and accomplishes that, is that, again, most people that get bit, they panic and, and things of that nature. So um, it's a lot easier said than done. You've got to keep a cool head, and, and if you do get bit, don't let that deter you. Stay dedicated to, to that process. Uh, and you, you're, you're, you're only going to be able to maximize your percentage chance for taking as little damage as possible. You know, that's, that should always be the goal. Yeah. That sequence isn't a guarantee that you're not going to get bit or injured. It's that's your best bet to, to stay out of uh, the dog's mouth uh, as, as much as possible. Because I, I, what I can tell you from experience, whether it's a nasty hunting dog that, you know, there's, there's farm dogs around here. I'm sure that, that are man eaters that would give people a run for the money that could probably take people's lives. When you have a dog that's in that, you know, whether it's incited by prey drive or it's, uh, you know, it's just a, a naturally, truly forwardly aggressive animal, you know, that dog is, is pretty hard to deal with, you know, and, and if you don't have the ability to do that, they're going to get the best of you. So it, it is important to keep a cool head and, and, uh, and realize that, uh, you know, the, the gimmicky tricks of, well, I'll just, you know, I'll shove my forearm into, into his mouth harder or I'll stick my hand down his throat. It's, it's kind of akin to saying, you know, I'm going to grab that, that chainsaw and stop it from moving. Right, you know, right. I mean, it's, it really is. I mean, they bite hard enough to break bone. God. You know, and, and I'll, I'll show you some, some pictures of some live bites after this that we won't post for you guys, unfortunately. But, you know, it's, it's legitimate, like, life-altering damage when you have a dedicated dog that's, um, you know, hell-bent on hurting you and gets a hold of you. It's, it's pretty rough to deal with. I thought I had it bad with a uh, mean rooster at home. <laughs> well the cock will get you, you know? so that's what i was going to ask if you've ever seen a bad guy successfully absolutely. neutralize a dog oh absolutely okay uh, it, it does happen i mean the, without a gun yeah absolutely okay um i would say that it's it's rare uh it's excruciatingly rare but it does happen uh you know the dogs are are not invincible uh usually when it happens is you know it's somebody who is physically very capable um, and is usually on something. You know, they don't feel right. any pain. Their, right. their, sta their state of mind or mentality is completely whacked out. For most people that, that aren't used to being bit, um, you know, and can't keep that level head when they do, that's all they think about, you know. And, you know, it's, it's mind-boggling. Sometimes you'll see people that, you know, a guy that's, you know, the size of your last guest, you know, or, or you know, some semblance of that size, you know that that will hand six cops their ass right, right you know in, in, right. A, in a fist fight they can't get control of this guy and then they, they pop out a little 60 pound female malinois and the guy's like nope you know and yeah. it just lays down and says i'm not i'm not messing with the dog so they are a very different um you know less than lethal mechanism for for maintaining uh you know order and, and apprehension in, in criminal scenarios but 
but you know, just like with human beings, or even you know, our best special operations soldiers, you know, they there are times where where they don't win. Uh, it's rare, you know. Overwhelmingly, they're they're far more successful. But uh, you know, yeah, there are times where whether it's a collar or somebody just has the ability, their their hands and, and grip strength is is enough to where they grab them by the throat or uh, you know can can injure the dog enough to uh, you know to neutralize that. What I will say is that whether it's a home invasion scenario. Uh, a law enforcement, a military, whatever, is that uh, even in the instances where the dog is defeated, one, it, it never happens fast. Uh, and, and even if the the subject is, uh, you know, utilizing a firearm, w- what it's doing is it's still giving you an ability to to now neutralize, you know, that, that person as well. He's busy. So, yeah, he, 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 there's a lot of things he's not paying attention to. You know, all of his focus, <coughs> excuse me, is on the dog. So even in, you know, overseas scenarios where the guy's armed and, you know, dumps a mag into the dog and shoots and kills him, which, again, doesn't happen often, but in those instances, it's still now you've got, you know, four, six, eight, ten guys who now have the jump on this guy, and, and he's not going to last much longer than that. Sure, so, makes sense. Have you ever heard of them say, I, I don't think it would be as much domestic-wise, but... Say a, a terrorist, an Islamic terrorist. Do you have you seen them train for dogs? Not really, because um, I do know they they like to target them, right? For sure, they do. I mean, no different than you know, say in World War II, where uh, they you know had to had to redo helmets and and different in, uh, rank and insignia you know markers and right. devices on their stuff to right. not not say, hey, that's that's a captain. Let's take him out or whatever. Similarly, yeah, they they many times are targeted, uh, you know, more so than uh, than than even the human counterparts because they know what they bring to the table. In terms of training, no, I've never seen, um, you know, really any any effective countermeasures. And, and you know, honestly, there there really isn't, um, you know, other than what they already do. I mean, in terms of just fighting them the way that they fight us and whatever, you know, that that's about as good as you're going to do. There, there's not really a you know some unique trick or tip that uh you know that's going to give people the the advantage over dogs and that's why they're they're really so so useful frankly is that you know if you look at the the scope of of mankind combating one another uh you know in an age where you know from the stone age all the way up until present day we've got you know billions of dollars of equipment and you know laser guided munitions and night vision and thermal and you know helicopters that do amazing things and and uh, all that kind of stuff you know the one thing that's still used in combat other than human beings are dogs you know from yeah. from day 1 up until present day i mean you know for our own own nations most elite special operations forces to use dogs out in front of them tells you a lot about the efficacy of them and, and how well they work because uh, soft units don't use things that don't work um, yeah you know and so the fact that they use dogs as, as much as they do and, and have uh, as much success with them as they do i think speaks volumes to their efficacy for sure but that is uh that is so cool man uh yeah just, just the fact that uh like you said it's just a it's a it goes through history of mankind of yeah. using canines mm-hmm. in warfare yeah. for all different reasons, whether it's uh, reconnaissance or sniffing out bombs or... Even, you know, World War II was probably the most uh, wide array of, of uh, practical applications of them. I mean, they used them as messengers, as, uh, you know, medic uh, carriers, that you know, they're moving equipment around, uh, you know, guard dogs, sentry dogs, uh, detector dogs. Um, I mean... Unfortunately, it's it's. Uh, I hate even even mentioning it because uh, it's it's such a black eye on humanity. I think, but 
uh, a lot of Russian and German um, forces would would strap you know suicide vests onto dogs hmm. and send them into opposing tanks to knock them off of of their tracks. I mean, they would train dogs to you know to just run straight towards a tank and and then they'd blow themselves up and, and disable a tank, which is is a horrible uh, thing to imagine, but, but not uh, surprising. But not surprising. I mean, given given the other atrocities that they committed, but yeah. uh, but you know, it, it does speak volumes though to the, the versatility of of dogs, and and they've just they've been used in so many different capacities, and and still to this day, you know, I mean, there's uh, insulin resistance dogs and therapy dogs of of every magnitude you can think of. I mean, they just there's so many uh, you know different elements of our society that, that they've been plugged into that. Uh, that they've made, uh, you know, life-changing differences in a very positive way. They're just, uh, you know, man's best friend. I think absolutely is a understatement. Absolutely, it would be it would be really hard to go through this interview and not uh, bring up buds. Yeah, and and uh, you know, hopefully, we'll have many more interviews. And you guys comment below if you want to see more Mike. Um, but I, I want to know. I, I I heard that you. You know, he's this kid from Iowa. You read the magazine, yeah, about the Navy SEALs. And first of all, where were you swimming in Iowa? That's the first yeah, question. Yeah, just in a swimming pool. Okay, uh, not not in any big body of water. I mean, there's there's a few lakes and reservoirs and stuff. There's not a, a ton of water in Iowa, but. Um, I grew up competitively swimming. My uh, my dad wrestled in high school with Dan Gable, and you know I was such a powerhouse wrestling state for decades. His knees um, and just entire lower body was pretty shot, and so he was doing a lot of swimming at the time while we were growing up as kind of a you know physical fitness rehab you know type of mechanism, and so we just all kind of gravitated towards that, and so because of my interest in the water and, and being competitive uh, swimming all growing up and uh, you know being a part of, of competition sports uh, swim clubs and things like that um, I had kind of a natural inclination towards uh, the SEAL teams because they're the you know the premier maritime special operations unit so um, you know spending a lot of time in the swimming pool is obviously very different from combat diving and swimming and, and being in the ocean my, my first time of actually being out in the ocean water was at Bud's uh, you know, we had been to, you know, Cocoa Beach, Florida or whatever, and I'd been, you know, in ankle high water as a kid or whatever. But, yeah, my first time actually being out in the ocean was, was at SEAL training and a uh, very different experience. Sure. You know, there's not a black line to guide off of. There's waves hitting you in the face. There's a, a swell and a current that's messing you up on the swims and whatever. And so, uh, and I'd never really swam with fins either. So, uh, you know, for me, it was it was a hell of an adjustment. To uh, to now you know swim in open ocean water with fins and having to guide and, and it was a very different experience. It was humbling, frankly, because I, I was not very good at it. As good of a swimmer as I was, uh, I was not a, a very effective combat side stroke swimmer. Was anybody? Uh, yeah, I mean, in class? surprisingly, some guys showed up. Uh, I think you know we had guys that uh, you know were Olympic olympic caliber swimmers i was for sure not that i mean i was competitive but um not at that level and so you know those guys showed up and and it was a breeze for them uh some other guys you know could barely swim but i think it's almost one of those things where if you're in really good shape and you're competitive and you've got you know strong genetics you're almost better suited to not have all these bad habits of not using fins and, and be, you know, you, you can, it's kind of like shooting. If, you know, teaching somebody who's never really shot, they don't have any bad habits as a kid that they picked up. So they're, they're a little bit easier to teach that way. But, uh, but yeah, it, um, 
you know, back to your question, it, you know, Iowa is not exactly a breeding ground for, for Navy SEALs. There's not many of us from there, but, uh, uh, but you know, it just, it kind of seemed like, uh, like the natural fit for me. But. So two part question, did you think you were ready for buds and then were you, uh, sort of to both, you yeah, know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was confident. I, you know, I'd started training for it when I was a sophomore. Uh, I, I, originally started doing uh, martial arts and this was before MMA existed and it, so it was kind of ahead of its time uh, it was a, it was a female um, a female instructor that was was based off of Okinawan karate shout out to to Pam Hammers who was uh, <laughs> she was a stud I mean she put the fear of, of everything in me as a high school kid and she was you know a five foot three you know 120 pound woman but um, but you know she ran this dojo that ha- that was underground like it wasn't a commercial it was out of out of her uh, her basement um you know and it was word of mouth and she had to you know accept you in and and it was it was pretty hardcore for for its time and we did you know filipino stick fighting and french foot fighting and wrestling and boxing and jujitsu some jujitsu um it, it was it was a form of of that i guess it was probably more like judo but it was just a, a kind of a nice mix of a lot of different things you know the way mma is now and this was before you know any of that ever before the ufc even was in existence but um so you know having having that as kind of the the backdrop with which you know between discipline and and you know having a strong mental uh capacity and and you know using a lot of kind of the traditional martial arts um philosophies towards working out and training and taking things serious and, and being disciplined and things of that nature helped out a lot um she was really hardcore the group was really hardcore and, and so using that and then you know still swimming a lot and i, I you know started running a lot and, and really preparing so i spent you know a good portion of my high school years uh you know training constantly to, to go there with that as my focus you know sure. so when i showed up uh, also not really knowing what to expect. I was 17. Uh, you know, I turned right, right after I turned 18, I went to boot camp, And so I was, you know, the youngest kid in the class and, uh, you know, it was kind of a deer in the headlights a little bit, but, uh, you know, for me showing up, uh, and then taking the test and seeing, you know, out of, out of, you know, quite a few kids that tried and, and most of them didn't even pass the screening test. And I passed it what felt like relatively easily uh, was a pretty big confidence boost too. Uh, it's not a hard test, but I think doing it in succession and, and the mentality or the, the the mental pressure of like, holy shit, I'm in the Navy and I'm trying out, you know, to go to the SEAL, seal training. Mm. And, um, you know, it was a lot for, for young kids at that age. And so, you know, most guys didn't make it. I passed it on the first time. And so then when, I, when I showed up, um, you know, it was humbling. I mean, there's no such thing as showing up in good enough shape to make it. Uh, I mean, that's one of the things of of SEAL training that, without question, I think is is probably the most important thing for anybody that wants to go is to realize the better shape you're in, uh, you know, the less mental pressure there's going to be and, and, you know, the less you're going to have to rely on your mind to get you through a lot of training. But without a doubt. So that that's that's what I want to go deeper with. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, reset these cameras, and then uh, I want to dig into that. Now, hang on. So physically, you think you're ready. Mentally, you think you're ready. You're, you're swimming a lot. You're, you're practicing martial arts, probably running. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're running a lot to get physically ready. Yeah. But... The, the mental part, that's what gets everybody. Yeah. 
there's a lot of strong guys. There's a lot of good swimmers. There's a lot of guys that could run miles and miles and miles. But there's got to be, and this is why I love talking about this on this podcast with elite people like yourself. There's got to be a switch in your brain that goes when your body's at the limit. And there's, there's all these little neurons firing off going, oh, nope. Now you're gonna you're gonna break. You're gonna get sick. You're too cold. You can't. This muscle's gonna tear. You're you got pneumonia. Mm-hmm. There's all these little neurons firing saying stop, stop, stop. Yeah. But you have a switch. Did you realize you had the switch then, or was it later in combat, or was it was it earlier as a kid? Or when did you figure out Mike has a switch that takes me to a new level past my physical capabilities? For sure, it was well after. Um, Unquestionably, I I didn't join to to not do that. I didn't join to quit. My dad and my, and both my parents were never like uh, overbearing in terms of their expectations, um, and I think that that was in a healthy way. It's part of why I, I didn't want to let them down. It's just because they, you know, they didn't put unrealistic expectations or you know super hard on me if if I didn't make make the grade with something or whatever. But uh, to me, it's the the realization that I've come to years later. Uh, and, and ironically enough, it's from working with so many dogs over the years at high levels is that it's genetic. Because hmm. uh, I was an instructor also my last three, uh, three and a half years in the, in the Navy. And so being a SEAL instructor on the other side of that curtain is an interesting uh, component to it because, you know, we've all been through the training. And now when you're hanging out with, uh, with the wizard behind the curtain and you see a lot of the things that you didn't realize took place, um, you know, are, are both fascinating, but they're also very insightful in terms of what you learn about yourself from having been through it. You are like, Jesus Christ, we did that. You know I mean? Like even as an instructor, putting kids through hell week is exhausting and you're only working an eight hour shift, you know, uh, and these kids are doing it for six days straight. And so, um, but in terms of the genetic component, I, I truly believe, um, that both in humans and in dogs, there's such a, a high number of parallels when it comes to performance and uh, that one percenter type of mentality of, of having a, a basically a complete disregard for, for your own life is that, that that is inherently not genetically normal for any living being, right? Is because, you know, our genetic code and, and makeup is such that, that self-preservation and, and the ability to, to perpetuate our gene pool is our primary uh, focus right survivability of a species is the number one thing that, that all species are are designed to to employ and so just having that mentality is is genetically not conducive to the the survivability of a species so it, it, to me it, it makes sense that you know when you're looking at human beings or dogs is that 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 disregard and saying you know what even though i know I'm heading into somewhere where, you know, there's a high probability I'm going to lose my life. I'm going to fucking do it anyway, is that that isn't normal. And it can't be normal for human beings to sur- to survive and, and continue to exist. And so as much as I'd love to say that, you know, I'm a tough guy, I'm not. I mean, to me, the guys and the dogs that make it through that training and have that that uh, disregard for their own safety is just a genetic mutation, frankly. And I, and I do believe it's an abnormality or, or a, a mutation uh, in this case in a good way 
sort of, uh, you know, in, the, sure. in that if you don't have that, you're not going to be able to do that. And most people don't have that, which is why most people don't make it through training. With dogs, it's the same thing. Most dogs, you know, when you get in their mind and, and I pick a fight with them and, and I make them understand that I'm, I'm here to snatch their, their soul, most of them say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. And they pack sand and they, and they quit. Uh, the ones that don't uh, are incredibly rare. And even when you're breeding for that, I mean, the, the luxuries I've had as a dog trainer and breeder and, uh, you know, fancier of, of different working breeds is being able to selectively breed unlike human beings. And so even when you take, you know, a male and a female that, that have that trait at a very high level, uh, their offspring, most of them don't have it. You know, even when you're doing it generation after generation and you're playing God and being able to pick you know, the genetic combinations properly, it's still a very elusive trait and something that's really hard to, to re uh, replicate. Not the answer I was expecting. Very convincing, and I'm pretty sure I believe you because yeah. you're very convincing. Uh, but to, to be a one percenter on this earth, you got to be born with it. I think that's, so. That's your argument. What if, what if there's someone out there that goes, how do I mentally train myself? To become a one percenter, and you, is your answer you can't? You just got to be born with it. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, That's, you're, you're not a very good motivational speaker to a big crowd. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, tough, tough shit, right? Like, uh, but that's yeah. not what you're known for, anyway. No, I mean, to you're me, not, that, yeah, you're not I mean, known for sugarcoating. Well, I mean, to me, if motivational speakers worked, there wouldn't be oh, five thousand so of them. That's you know? so true. If and a million books. Yeah, I mean, like if 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 Tony Robbins, you know, if one of his seminars worked, those people wouldn't ever need to come back and they would be able to go teach it to everybody else. That is so true. You know, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I truly think is that like with dogs, you know, there's so many parallels between humans and dogs is that, you know, most people with dog training is that it takes that same kind of level of dedication to, to truly have a trained dog. I mean, yes, some people get lucky with that, that unicorn that doesn't really need to be trained and just picks things up and, and is a dream dog and whatever, but those are outliers. Most people, just like with working out or getting a black belt in jiu-jitsu or being a, a great chef, um, you know, is that there, there are elements to that that just require a lot of repetition and dedication. And unfortunately, human beings uh, aren't typically that dedicated. You know, if you, if you look at the mass population, there's more lazy people than there are not. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, and I, I would pose kind of the same question to you being in the entertainment industry. You know, there, there are people, uh, American Idol, I think, teaches us a good lesson in humility that way. And that, uh, you know, there are some people that, that work their entire childhood and their parents get them the lessons and that, you know, that's what they want to do. And they work their ass off and, and they get the training and whatever, and they still just absolutely suck. Yeah. You know, you're um, right. So you're right. You know, to me, it, it's, it's the same is, is that, cause to me, people talk about motivation and, you know, motivation peters out in everybody, you know, and that's where discipline comes in. Right. And, and so where discipline comes in is that's you making the, the concerted conscious decision to say, you know what, this sucks. I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. To me, while, you know, on the surface, that may seem like a choice. I truly believe that, that, that the, you, you and having the ability to, to make yourself do things that suck is genetic, you know, because most people can't do it. And, and again, the yeah. motivational speaker thing, if, if you could motivate and convince somebody to put themselves through that, there'd be way more seals, entertainers, black belts in jiu-jitsu, successful entrepreneurs, everything is that, you know, that, that small fraction of the percentage of the population that truly says there is no plan B, there's no safety net. 
I'm going to do what I set out to do come hell or high water. You're going to have to kill me, uh, you know, to stop me is that there's just not many people that, that truly have that when it starts to suck. I can't argue, man. You're right. And, uh, yeah, it, it's in the, in the music business as well. You know, a lot of people will ask, what does it take? And can, do they have what it takes? And the, the true answer is I usually know yeah. right off the bat you don't. Yeah. And sometimes they do. Yeah. But but are, are you willing to do what no one else is? Yeah. And that's not that's not a matter of work ethic, really. It's not a matter of well, I'll just stay up all night and work. That that, that doesn't equate to doing what no one else will ever do mm-hmm. consistently. Yeah. And um, yeah, maybe maybe you're just born with it. I cannot argue with that. Yeah. I mean, again, I, you know, having seen so many people, you know, give you the lip service of no, you know, you know, and again, as an instructor, I saw it time and time again, you know. With an 85% attrition rate, you know, you see these kids who for years have been training for something, finally are given the shot, they come, and in the first few days, ring the bell and quit. And the first thing that they say five minutes after they quit, well, I'm coming back. Motherfucker, you could still be here. How does that happen? I always wonder that. How, how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, it happens every class. Yeah, I mean, so it's just... Why you do know, you do that? Again, I think it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a mental lack of, of capacity. But why do they even go through that? How have they, how have they not learned that they're not capable of that yeah, before I, they start? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, that's something I can't answer. I, you know, um, I, I really, I don't understand it. I, I've never understood it. I've tried. And, you know, I've talked to, you know, a number of kids who, you know, and that's not a decision that it's, it's like deciding to not play baseball this year. I mean, that's a life-altering decision that you are going to regret for the rest of your life, rest assured. Yeah, you're going to you know, remember that, Bill, for the yeah, rest of your life. Well, and, and, you know, above and beyond that is that, you know, when you go from there, like, it's not, oh, well, let's kick you back in training and give you another shot. Like, you're going to go to the fleet and chip paint for four years. You know, and and live on a on a prison ship, basically. You know, mm, being the, the lowest of the low. You know, you're an undesignated seaman, uh, which you know, how many jokes can multiple, you multiple multiple meanings behind <laughs> yeah. that? Yeah, but uh, yeah, so you you go to the fleet and you're and you're basically a worker bee. You know, for several years, most of the guys. You know, and so uh, you know that's a pretty miserable existence, and and they know that going in. I mean, I think. The, the SEAL teams are, are a unique bunch in that, you know, unlike the Army or the Marines or Air Force or whatever, is that if you don't make it in their special operations courses, you generally go do things that are, are somewhat similar. You know, maybe you're in infantry. If you, you didn't make it through Rangers or, or, you know, Green Beret Q course or whatever, well, then you're, you know, you're in an infantry unit or an armored division unit or something like that, and you're still going into combat and doing a lot of the same things, maybe just not at the higher level. Marine, same thing. Like, you know, you're going to be in infantry if, if you if you don't make it. In the Navy, like, your life is going to be vastly different. You know, you're going to be wearing, uh, you know, haze gray dungarees, and, and you're out, you know, swabbing decks and, and cleaning Jeez. dishes and, and floating around, you know, the world miserable for several years. And so You're so right. You know, to to know that, and it's not like that's a secret. I mean, they know that that is their fate if they if they quit. And I think what it always boils down to is mental pressure. You know, whether whether that's manifested through environment environmental conditions like cold water or stress and mental pressure from the from the staff, or the anticipation of what's next, or you know, watching the sun go down in Hellwick and knowing it's it's about to get real miserable cold, and you're going to be laying in the water. And uh, you know, there's there's a million mind games that the staff plays. Uh, you know, with with the students to uh, to to test them over and over and over, and and it's 
not uncommon to see, you know, the one of the cadre, whoever's leading a, an exercise or an evolution say, okay, you know, pick your boats back up. We're going to run down to somewhere that's six miles away. And, and they start running and guys quit. And then they put the boats down and turn around and come back. They weren't even going to go down there. They just made it seem like wow. they were going to do that. And, and that happens all the time, whether it's, you know, doing a big loop on a, on a run where you pass where you were supposed to turn in and, and stop and, yep, all right, we're going to do it again. You know, and you're like, Jesus, that was four miles. We've got to do that again. And they only go for two or 300 yards, and they see guys quit in, in that little amount of time of knowing, Christ, we've got to go do that same four-mile run wow. again. But, but then they don't even do it. Or, uh, you know, having guys march out into the water and, and then lay down in it, you know, and do surf torture and do that, you know, they go out into the water, they come back, they go out, they come back, and you'll get guys quitting on the way back out there all the time. Uh, and then that ends up the group didn't even go back out there. They just pretended to send them back out there. So, um, you know, and I mean, to me, it's just, it, it ultimately always boils down to, to mental toughness. And again, I think, you know, where discipline and mental tough, uh, toughness kind of crisscrosses is in that genetic arena of, um, you know, it's either there or it isn't. You so know? which one can you cultivate mental toughness or discipline? I think you can you can teach people to be disciplined to a certain point, uh, but what I've learned again in, in dogs is that you know genetics are um, are the thermometer, if you will. You know, it, it it is the the bar at which you are always going to be limited by, right? So, uh, take Muhammad Ali. You know, why do we know his name? It's not because he had a great coach and worked hard and you know started early. Hmm. It's because he had the genetics to when he applied those things allowed him to get to a level that is world class. Yep. And so I think that again in dogs and, and with people it's the exact same thing is that uh, you could use entertainment or, or sports uh, in any sport as as another uh, you know kind of gateway to that is that. Uh, if you have the genetics and you put the time in and have great coaches and start early and, and do all of the things that, that are required to get to that world-class level, you'll get there. If you don't have the genetics, all of that and, and, and every, you know, sports camp, you know, summer camp and, you know, um, three-week spring, spring break training seminar with Peyton Manning, it, it's not going to turn you into that if, if the genetics just aren't there to support it. So so you're saying <clears throat> David Goggins, who I don't know, maybe you know David. I actually don't, and I've never uh, met I, I don't think I've ever even met him. You're but. saying all the squawking he does on social media about people need to get hard and toughen up, he's just speaking to nobody because unless well, you're born with it, you're not going to be reformed by somebody like that. I, I would say largely yes. Are, are there some people that, without a doubt, guys like Jocko or David Goggins or Tony Robbins or, or any of the people that, you know, use a lot of that, um, you know, mentality and, and kind of, you know, almost soapbox preach to, to people that way, are they positively impacting people's lives? Yeah, I think they are. Sure. Uh, and I think that there's some people that they, they actually probably make a significant difference in. Are they turning zeros into heroes? No. Again, if they were, there'd mm. be a fuck ton more heroes mm. out there. Um, you know, but to me, it's, it's kind of ignorance is bliss in a way. And that, um, yeah, I see it in dog training a lot. A lot of people will sign up for my online, online dog training. Uh, not a lot of people, but a number of them will sign up for it and, and not really use it. You know, they'll sign on a couple of times, watch a few videos, you know, they do a session here or there. It makes them feel better about being a dog owner. Feels good. Um, feels good to hear Jocko tell you to yeah, get tough. You know, it, it makes you feel good get to take a picture early. of your watch yeah, right, and, and post right. it, you know, with your nine followers and and uh, you know, and it makes you feel like you're 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 part of something and it gives you purpose. And and you know, I'm not knocking that. 
uh, to me, it's just if you're trying to get to a level of, of world class, whether it's special operations or super high level dog training or, you know, touring, you know, where you're selling out 30,000, you know, audience venues and, you know, at, at that level, you know, or, you know, you own an eight or nine figure business as an entrepreneur and you've built several of them, you know, with a lot of these like entrepreneur clinics and stuff is that if it was a matter of just listening to this guy and trying to apply that, then there'd be way more of them in, in every industry, uh, in every walk of life, you know? So you're not trying to come out with a, uh, self-growth book anytime. Well, I, I think, so. if I, I think if I do this episode for sure, just, uh, you know, canceled all the orders. For well, it, it, it also, and I hate to call anybody out here, but it also just highlights the fact that any, if you're writing a personal growth book, you, you're, you're trying to make some money. Sure. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You're trying to get some clicks, make some money, but, but, but those guys probably know Tony Robbins goes to bed every night and knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah. He's saying all the right things. Sure. Are people digesting it? Probably not. Sometimes, yeah. but probably not. Yeah, I think, you know, again, most most people are, are probably somewhere in the middle where, you know, maybe they pick up a couple of things that, that for sure improves their life in, in certain ways. You know, it, it's not me... You know, knocking some guys. I mean, to me, guys like Tony Robbins, you know, they probably positively impacts fewer people than Jocko, Dave Goggins, things like that. But, and I'm not just saying that because they're, you know, brethren of mine. I, I think they've walked it, you know, to yeah. my knowledge. Tony Robbins' business is, is built off of his ability to tell you that, that, you know, he can teach you how to run a business. Um, right. You know, whereas, you know, these other guys have, have proven over and over and over, um, you know, of, of walking what they walk. But I still think. Uh, you know that 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 only goes as far as as what the person's genetic capabilities are are willing to allow them to go. Uh, so true, man. It's so true. So, um, me and you, similar age. I think you said high school ninety six. Yeah, yeah. So I was ninety eight, and um, our, our generation, which is you know parents in the Vietnam era, grandparents World War II. Uh, I, I always think that our generation has seen. The biggest demasculation for sure in our culture, yeah, and h- how do you see that playing out is there is there going to be a wave of masculinity that rises again, or does this keep going um, till everyone is neutral yeah uh, so to me, back to you know my I think mother nature trumps everything you yeah. know is, is yeah. that you know that adage, and i 'll probably mess it up, but it's Hard times create strong men, strong men create, uh, you know, good times, good times create weak men, mm. weak men create hard times, you know, and, and it's just this cycle that keeps going through is mm. that if you look at, at human history, at least as, as well as we know it, how it's been recorded, which, you know, who can, who can debate it? That's just what it says. It doesn't mean that's exactly how it happened. But, you know, I think we, we all live in, a, in an information age that's uh, digested enough to understand that that's a pretty true representation of, of mankind. Mm. Um, and so to me, there, there is a point in, in every society and every empire and every, you know, uh, cultural um, section of the world that, that kind of goes through that, that cycle in, in some way. Um, and so to me, you know, the de- demasculation that we've experienced over the last few decades has a shelf life, you know, because America as a country, I mean, you don't have to look very far, even now, Christ, w- within the last few weeks, that things can get pretty gnarly pretty quick. Uh, and there's a lot of other places on the planet that, um, you know, that have truly brutal dictatorships that, uh, you know, I've gone and fought against. Uh, and seeing when when it's true evil that's in power, and they decide, you know what, 
we're going to stay in power and we're going to keep things the way they are. Um, you know, there's a, there's an element of, of your society that has to rise to a certain occasion and, and we can only soften ourselves so much for so long before somebody is going to say, not now we're going to own them and, and they will, uh, whether it's China, Russia, a combination of, of several other countries, who knows, it could be a complete self-destruction within our own, um, way of life, looking at the way things have been going. Uh, you know, but again, the, the rest of the world and, and human beings are opportunists, opportunistic in nature. Uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, other nations are very vulture-like in the way that they view things. Sure. And are just waiting for the right opportunity to say, you know, we're going to take everything that, that we want from there. And, and people that that are so naive and head in the sand to think that that can't happen, like it, it's happening all over the world. It, it always has mm-hmm. and it always will. Uh, you know, violence and, and um, you know, physical altercation is, is truly the gold standard at, at some point. It, it will come to that. It's coming to that. Uh, you see it in Seattle as an example, you know, this... Uh, you know, Chaz and now Chop and, and mm-hmm. whatever is that uh, the fact that we have a society where the police is saying, yeah, we're, we're just not going to do anything about that. I mean, that's that's kind of the start of the dominoes falling, in my opinion, in that uh, if a society is willing to just let people take the country over that way, like, look what's happened there. That's a microcosm of what the entire country will be if it continues to, to go down the, the road that it's been going down, is that a, a group of people is going to realize we can do whatever we want, you know, and then they're going to go do whatever they want. And now you're, you know, all of your rights and don't say this word and stop bullying, all that shit is going to go right out the window. And you're going to have groups of people doing exactly what they're doing in, in chop, which is killing each other and running yeah. a, a brutal dictatorship and, and having, you know, guns and walls and, you know, their own secret, uh, you know, police or enforcers that are running around, you know, doing what they want. it'll turn into, you know, a, 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 bu- a brutal regime type of environment if nobody decides, you know what, we can't let this go on any longer. Uh, that's, that's unfortunately Amen. the path we're going down. So good, man. So good. And you have probably had the gift. You don't look at it as a gift. You didn't then. But I'm assuming you have looked in the eyes of someone that's, that told you through the eyes, I want to own you. Without I a want doubt. to own you. With, without and, a and, doubt. And not, most people haven't. Yeah. Most people haven't seen that staring them back in the face. Absolutely. And I wonder if that would change people's opinions yeah, if I, they had that, that, that gift that you've had. I think uh, that by itself, without the context of the, the greater gravity or, or you know, heaviness of, of what's going on around you, uh, I don't think would. Um, but for sure, it, it, would, it would help. It would prove beneficial. But I think, you know, until you've seen, um, I, I think, the, the, the real brutal violence and, and anger that exists in some people toward you, irrespective of, of what you try to convince them otherwise, or if you're willing to negotiate or give ground, compromise, whatever, is that there are certain people that there is nothing you can do or say that's going to change their mind, uh, that, that they, they want to you know, remove your life and existence from the planet, whether it's you as an individual, you as a, as a society, as a nation, as a state, whatever, um, you know, and until you've seen that you, you, it's impossible to, to realize it. And it's also unfair and unrealistic for those that have experienced that to expect people to understand what that's like. Cause they're just not going to no different than, you know, a child that's never, 
been out of Iowa, you know, that spent right. his entire life right. in, in, a, in a small podunk town in Iowa. And try, it's, it's like trying to expect him to understand what being street smart in Harlem is like. Like, he's just not going to know. Mm-hmm. And if he goes there, he, so he, right. he's going to get... He's going to get owned because he just doesn't know any better, you know. And unfortunately, we've been riding off of the coattails of, of the greatest generation in World War II, and and they did, you know, springboarding off of the Great Depression, surviving that, overcoming World War II, and then you know that that shelf life of success is is starting to expire uh, from from what I see. And and you can only ride the wave of of a generation who's willing to walk the walk for so long before you've got to answer that that call too and and you know there still are people that that do it but there's not enough uh, there's too many people so that, are, right, that are willing to just lay it lay it down i i uh want to preface I, I don't even want to come close to um matching anything you've ever done but but the, the tiny tiny minuscule story i could tell you is that you know one of our entertainment tours in iraq uh we were playing a concert and suddenly in the middle of the concert there was incoming because the, as we heard the music cued some bad guys, mm-hmm. and as we as we got into the bunker, I thought for the first time ever I thought somebody's trying to kill me because they hate me, yeah. because of who I am, because of my culture, yeah. and that I dwelled on that thought. That was the weirdest feeling to know that someone hates you and they've never even met you. Yeah. Well, and, and to me, that, that kind of, I think, exemplifies, uh, you know, that context that I was talking about is that it's one thing for somebody to look at you and, and you can tell, especially if, you know, all of the other information surrounding supports the fact that they're actively trying to take your life. But that that changes everybody. You know, for sure, I was very different from the, the first time I went overseas and, and faced, uh, you know, other human beings that... Uh, you know, and, and being in a in an area where you know the the majority of the population is actively trying to take your life, when you're in that environment and you know bullets are, are flying by your head and you're in a helicopter that almost gets shot down and mm-hmm. uh, you know you're going through areas that you get ambushed and and somehow make it out uh, alive, it 100% changes you the, the same way it, it did you. And, and to me, you, you don't have to be a a professional soldier or a combat veteran to, to experience that. I mean, people experience it on the street, you know, um, obviously it's, it's different circumstances, but that principle is the exact same. You know, once you've seen that, it, it changes people for sure. We've talked another 30 minutes and take a quick break. Yep. Be right back. Our granddads were both cooks in the Navy in World War II. No doubt. And, uh, that's, and I heard you say that, and then you, you also said the same thing I thought, that uh, a cook is not what you think it was when you're on a, a ship yeah. in, uh, in World War II. Because uh, my granddad told me stories of, he was in the Pacific, I believe your, your granddad was on the other side, yeah, and, in the Mediterranean. And uh, my granddad told me stories of kamikazes coming in and taking out the gunner, so he's... Now he's in. Now he's sitting yeah. in the turret, you know. Yeah. And uh, it's it's a. Uh, you're right when you said it's the greatest generation, and uh, they did what they did because they had they had no other choice. Yeah. You know, to me, it's it's interesting. I uh, was listening to your last guest. You guys talking about uh, you know not having a plan B. That's where we were as an entire society. You know, at that point, is that is there there wasn't a well if we don't do this, it's no we have to go do this or, or the world will cease to exist as we know it. Yep. You know, it, it literally, you hear existential threat gets thrown around 
uh, you know, constantly nowadays and overused, but, uh, but it, it truly was that back then. And, you know, to me, what's interesting is the entire nation, you know, banded together and, and everybody, you know, had, had that collective mentality of, you know, we're all going to do what we can to the best of our ability to support, you know, the, the mission. And the mission was to, was to go defeat Japan and Germany, um, you know, or, or the Axis powers at least. And, uh, you know, for, for them to be able to accomplish that and go over there, you know, we, even though, you know, combat deployments are, they're tough, they're stressful in their own right. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of apples to oranges to, to compare, uh, you know, wars in Afghanistan and Iraq compared to, to World War II. However, um, you know, we at least get a rotational break, right, you know, right. now, granted some guys are going for 13, 15 months at a, at a stretch, but they still get to come home. I mean, some of those guys went over there for four years straight, right. Um, you know, and there wasn't satellite phones or wasn't internet that, you know, they, they got a handwritten letter out, you know, once in a great while or, or got something when they could or whatever. But, you know, they, they basically went over there saying, we'll come home when the job is done, God. you know, yeah. and that's hard to even wrap your mind around. But, um, but I think very similar to the mentality that you guys are talking about, without that mentality, you're you're not going to be successful. You know, if if you go over there and you know you can retreat, I mean, it's the the Viking adage of burn your boats, right? Yeah. Is that you know when you get over there, you know us us sailing back home isn't an option, so we're going to take over your entire entire country. Is is kind of how you have to look at it that way. And and you know there was I think a certain innocence and, and naivete that existed between. Uh, and, and some could argue that whether or not it's good or bad, but uh, of kind of state-run media doing maybe a little better job of uh, of protecting uh, the country from some of the um, you know the the realistic truths of combat and uh, you know cro- crossing over into into Vietnam, where I think America really kind of lost its its innocence as it relates to its understanding of what war is really like. You know, again, you could argue whether it's good and bad. I think there's there's pros and cons to both. But uh, but back then, when there was there was still kind of that, you know, hey, this is this is what we have to do, and, and everybody was behind it, and it, and it seemed like, again, neither of us were around then, but it seemed like much simpler times back then, where it was a yeah. lot easier to just unite everybody. And you're so right. You know, there's a common enemy, and there wasn't all this division and infighting, and and you know, now I feel like. You know, it, we're getting ready to repeat the Civil War almost. You know, and, and that there there's uh, you know a lot of debate. Uh, and, and one of the questions you hear, you know, in reference to World War II is, uh, you know, in terms of Nazism, is how did that happen? You know, most people are like, how could a country have ever, you know, gotten to a point where they're willing to do that to another group of people? And and I, I see a lot of uh, scary and stark parallels to to what you know, happened back then versus what, ha- what happens now and that you've got a significant portion of our population that, that is okay, you know, with, with the opposing side being brutalized and even celebrating it, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, because they disagree with them politically. And to me, that's, that's poisonous. It's dangerous. Yeah. Um, you know, and you get to the point yeah. where, where you, you lack empathy for, for people that, that oppose you politically to the point where, where you're okay with their rights being taken away with them being, you know, attacked on the street because they, you know, are, are wearing shirts or hats of, of whatever their, their political party is. And to me, like that's a slippery slope if I've ever seen one and that, you know, th- that that's not, not too many steps further. And now you've got internment camps and, and concentration camps and, and things like that. I just, I, I worry that 
that we've kind of uh, numbed ourselves to uh, to a side of empathy that, that human beings should should have more than they do nowadays. It's a valid worry. My other granddad was uh, in Europe. He was flying a B twenty four out of Italy, and so I, I read his flight diary. I've read every every mission many times, and uh, unfortunately, after he died. Uh, was the first time I really dove into that. I oh, never wow. talked about it yeah. when he was around. Uh, but but those missions, he, he was so scared. You know, if he's going into the oil fields in Ploesi or, or, uh, or you know, hitting Munich, and he had fighters and 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 uh, it was it was terrible. But as scared as he was to go back up again on another mission, there wasn't a. Uh, maybe I'm going to call in sick today. There yeah. wasn't another option. Yeah. And and sometimes he just did it because he had to. That was all he could do for mm-hmm. him and his guys. And the, and the other thing was every once in a while he would say something like, missed the target really bad today. I feel terrible. We missed the target really bad. And I thought, I thought to myself in those little words, what he means is probably got a lot of innocent people yeah. today. Yeah. And that's just the way it is mm-hmm. in war. Yeah, and today that wouldn't fly for sure. You yeah. couldn't say that. You couldn't do that. Every, there would be an investigation, yeah. and that was just the way that it was back then because that's all there was. It was black and white for sure. You know, to me, the where I I worry, I guess, about um, you know the 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 transgressions that have taken place or, or the the regression rather that uh, that we've delved into as a society as it relates to combat is is trying to, to regulate certain things. Um, you know, and I've talked at length, uh, you know, a number of times about, you know, kind of my view on foreign policy is really not too dissimilar, uh, than that of a street fight is that, you know, let's say you're, you're walking by a, uh, an establishment and there's a, a brawl going on and you decide to walk in you going in there is going to cause problems. You not going in there is going to, is going to cause problems. You know, there, there's nothing that you can do or not do that isn't going to piss somebody off and help somebody else out. Uh, but the problem mm. is, is that, you know, no different than if I, you know, get attacked on the street or, or somebody, you know, tries to break into my house is that, you know, that isn't the time uh, for trying, for me trying to be a gentleman about it. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I look back at, uh, you know, as a, a Civil War lesson learned, Tecumseh Sherman, you know, of, of being of the mentality of, and, you know, he went to, to Atlanta and basically burned the, the entire city down, is that, you know, at that at that time, war is, is horrible, you know, and, and when you tit for tat and cat and mouse the way that we've done in Iraq and Afghanistan, you get a lot more of your own side killed, you get a lot more of the other side killed, frankly, than... Uh, you know, than than what you you should or need to, and it really needs to boil down to, is that you know you you use di- diplomacy and negotiations and compromise until you know all of those options are exhausted, and once it gets to that point where war is the only option left, and and you have to employ, uh, you know, your armed forces to go fight another country's armed forces. At that point, you take the gloves off and you do absolutely whatever you have to to end it as fast as possible. Uh, there is there is no good way to fight a war other than to make it as as brutal and as fast and and just done as quick as possible. That's the only thing that's going to minimize damage as best you can. Like it, it's going to suck. Yeah. People are going to lose their life, and there's going to be some some innocent people lost. Uh, but when you look at Afghanistan, and you've got you know going on twenty years of sustained combat there, and 
and you know countless lives on both sides and trillions of dollars and 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 you look at at what really has been gained and it's it's hard to have a, a very positive answer with that is that you know you've got to just decide I'm not going to go to war unless it's absolutely necessary if it is necessary we're going to go over there and we're going to absolutely fucking destroy you guys and that's it you know and, and as soon as it's done we're going to leave and and then you know if you mess with us again we're coming back over and so do right. the same thing Sherman was considered a hero after what he did yeah I mean, how, how long do you think Sherman would have lasted on Twitter these days yeah I mean <laughs> he'd, he'd be in Leavenworth put, making the big rocks into little rocks man what what Tecumseh Sherman did was so far off the grid from what anyone could possibly understand in, in warfare today. And like you said, though, he did what he had to do. Yeah, I mean, because it, it was stalling at that point, you know, and, it, and, you know, the Civil War lasted five years as it is. Hundreds of thousands of, of countrymen were lost on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, you know, you get to a point where it's like, you know, ripping the Band-Aid off almost. It's just... You know, shit or get off the pot. Like at some point, you've got to just decide. You know, we're we're here to accomplish a mission. We're going to do whatever it takes to do that. And and one of our our biggest problems as a country is utilizing politicians and people that have no experience and frankly no business directing or dictating rules of engagement or how to conduct yourself as a professional warfighter to people who are professional warfighters. You know, and that's one of our our biggest hamstrings and, and detriments to to our armed forces is outsourcing that tactical control and, and you know looking to dad for a can I do this type of mentality that uh, that ultimately just ends up causing way more more harm than good because those those guys uh, have no business directing troops they don't know what it's like to be there and, and frankly they uh, they don't really even understand the impl- implications uh, foreign policy wise to me it's no different than calling a plumber and when he gets over here I don't know shit about plumbing but I'm going to tell him hey uh, be careful with that pipe and well, I'd, I'd really rather you not use that wrench yeah. like you hired him to do a job let him do his job I mean yeah. that's what the military is our job is to go overseas and break shit uh, you know, and, and so don't send us over there until you need us to do that. But when you need us to do that, send us over there and let us do it. And and if it if it just stays that simple, uh, you know, I think far less problems would be had. I, I, I truly believe that some of life's most complex problems actually have the the simplest solutions to them. And, and that being a classic example of it. We want to we want people to go get the termites out of our house, but not tear up any of the drywall. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, there's a million analogies you could use in, in, in all other walks of life that you don't do it that way, yeah. right? Like, I'm not going to argue with a brain surgeon on how he's going to take a tumor out of my head. Yep. yep. And, and I don't care if he's a nice guy. I mean, while we're, while we're on the topic of, you know, hating politicians because they don't like, you know, the way that they conduct themselves or what they say, like, I don't give a shit. If he does a good job and he does what needs to be done, I like him. You know, if, if I've got... I need a full knee replacement, and, and the doctor's a prick. I'm not going to switch doctors because I want to like the guy. I don't, yeah. I don't care uh, if he's good at what he does. But, um, you know, unfortunately, we, we have a, a problem with being able to separate those things at a high level nowadays. But What does the American flag mean to you? It's not a trick question. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's it's opportunity is is the first thing that comes to mind, really, is that, you know, it, it's a combination of freedom and opportunity. Freedom uh, is dicey, though, and that... When I look at our country and I think, you know, what what does a truly free society look like? You know, 2020 United States of America isn't what I think of. Uh, there's a lot of things that, that you're not allowed to do, um, unfortunately, that uh, that it frankly breaks my heart that, uh, you know, myself and a lot of, uh, you know, countrymen of mine have, have given a fair bit for. But, 
Um, I still think it's the it's the best and freest country on the planet, um, and I'm very proud to be an, an American. I'm proud to, to have fought for it, um, but it, it, it does worry me um, how much of our freedoms and liberties have uh, have gone to shit, especially here recently with Corona and uh, you know and, and uh, race protests and riots and things of that nature. But so why is that flag starting to represent racism? Well, to me, it it doesn't oh, represent it to me. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, but why is that getting that perception? So I, I think, um, I, you know, this give you or go, we'll go back almost do a little history <laughs> lesson here. I guess is that I, I, I would think, love that. I love I, history. I, I think the 1990s. Um, it and bear with me. It's kind of a long long tail on the kite, if you will. But uh, the the 90s, I think, when political correctness started to creep into our society. Uh, and as it relates to children is that, you know, like with most things, the road to hell is paved with good intentions is that, you know, abusive parents and, and things of that nature, the, the desire on, on a society and a government to try to mitigate, uh, those types of things turned into an overcorrection, uh, of, of now micromanaging parents and, and school administrations, teachers, et cetera, you know, all of the, the unit, uh, the family and, and community unit that, that has the ability to impact and raise children the, the way that they need to be raised, i.e. productively and be an asset, not a liability, was was severely diminished. Uh, again, the intentions were good, I think, but when you when you overcorrect to a point where now you're the intent, the opposite intended consequence is taking place, is that that's when there's a problem. Is, is there wasn't a happy medium approach, and so now you can't spank your kids, you can't say this to them, you can't ground them, you can't take anything away from them. That you know they can sue you for taking the cell phone that you pay for away from them. Uh, you know it's gotten so ridiculous is that. Now you have generations, and, and you know people always ask, you know, what's it going to be like when uh, these entitled generation whatevers grow up? Well, now you're looking at it is that you've got a society where somebody's bullying me, let me whine about it to somebody, and they'll make it stop. Uh, somebody picked on me for this, let me let me tell on them. Somebody stole this from me, let me just go report them. Is that you know we we've micromanaged and helicoptered two generations of children. Uh, to a point at which now they they are just you know born and bred and and conditioned into a victim mentality, right? Is that is that I don't I, I can't solve any problem on my own, right? Is that I'm going to get in trouble if I punch the bully in the in the face? I'm going to get in trouble if if I solve my own problems? I need to go to my mom or my teacher or whatever. Um, and and so you know to me, 20 years later, is that now you've got adults who are entitled who every time that there's a problem is is that instead of trying to work it out is that they throw a, a fucking temper tantrum like you're seeing right now is that they they just go demand that well I, you know I want this and I need that and you need to take this down and that offends me you know and all of this other stuff because they've been taught that for the last 20 years and so you know now we we've created this environment where where that thrives uh, and so to me it, it it's not that uh, now all of a sudden racism exists. I mean, if you look at the, the historical context of our country, I mean, as of 1965, you know, at least on a, on a large scale platform where it was accepted, it stopped. You know, yeah, right. there, there were pockets here and there that, that have slowly 
uh, dwindled over time. And yes, there's pockets that still exist, but guess what? There are pockets of that that exist in every society. You know, I can tell you as somebody who's been to, to other places, you know, and not even just saying against me, I mean, seeing the way certain groups are treated in other countries, and these are their own own citizens, uh, you know, makes any, any of the worst travesty you've ever seen in this country look like a fucking picnic. Um, you know, it, it happens, you know, and, and we still have the freest, most uh, democratically balanced middle of the road society out there. But it, it's unfortunately in the entire world, in the entire world, yes. unfortunately, it's not getting better. It's getting worse because of this uh, this entitled generation that that is now, uh, you know, the participation trophy crew that uh, that thinks that. Uh, you know, they ought to get paid just for, for showing up, um, you know, and it's it, it's going to come to bite us in the ass for sure. Uh, again, it, it has a shelf life and there will come a time much sooner than later that uh, that the country, Mother Nature, the planet, whatever, uh, is going to self-correct in, in some way, shape or form. And, and it's going to get back out of out of balance. I'm, uh, I'm afraid you're right. And it's, it's maybe that's the wrong choice of words. Um, I'm happy that that I believe that you're right. Um, it's going to get worse before it gets better, I believe, and it's going to hurt to rip that Band-Aid off. But I, I do think that uh, genetics and and Mother Nature will correct itself, like you said. And and Mike, you you're active on social media. You have a a really good podcast called the Mike Drop, and um, I've listened to a bunch of those episodes and what you're kind of known for is you speak the truth through common sense, the way that you see it. And you're not filtered by trying to win people over or win an election of some kind or make a whole bunch of money. Uh, by the way, I hope you do. I hope you do make <laughs> you, a whole bunch of money, but, yeah. but you're not filtered by any kind of other reason besides just seeing things, uh, through common sense. And, and, and so many times I just wish people could could put all their their other motives aside and just yeah. see the basics. Let's just look at things the most basic way. And uh, and I'm I'm just so grateful, man, that you that you are a voice out there for people to listen to. Well, I appreciate that very much. I uh, you know my my intent with starting it was <clears throat> excuse me essentially that was that. You know, I'd been on a number of other podcasts where it was, hey, you know, we don't want to talk about this or, hey, my sponsor, you know, wants us to stay away from that or, or whatever. And, it, and it's just like, you know, um, for me, like I, I don't take the approach of, you know, the Howard Stern shock jock where it's, you know, what what can I say that's really going to piss as many people off as yeah. possible? Or how can I get a rise out of this group? Or, you know, what can I say to get everybody to, to click on this and watch this? Like, nothing could be further from uh, from my intent as it relates to that. It, it's just, while I, I don't go out of my way to piss anybody off, I just, I'm not concerned if I do. Um, you know, and so... Well said. Yeah, so I mean, it, it, it's pretty liberating that way. Well and, that, and again, like, I'm not going to just run my mouth if I don't have anything to back it up. Like, I'm not just going to say, oh, well, you know, throw something wild out there and, and uh, not have, you know, at least I've spent some time thinking about it or I've talked to X, Y, and Z. You know, I've I've had some remarkable people on on the show over the last couple of years, and and I'm actually working on uh, on a, on a book. Uh, it'll be you know a musings of Mike Drop type of type of politics book where it's it's kind of taking uh, a little bit from all the different people that I've interviewed and, and the subject matters of expertise that they play a role in, and, and kind of combining it all into 
a lot of what we're talking about here today and, and just uh, kind of laying it all out there of, of how this country uh, has kind of turned into what it has and, and you know, what what we need to identify to, to ultimately fix it, hopefully. But uh, so. And you don't come across as an idealist, which at the same time uh, becomes dangerous on either side. Yeah. Being an idealist meaning... I believe this, no matter what, no one will ever change my mind. That's just how I was raised, and that's how I believe. You're more of a, this is the way I see it, and this is what I've learned in my, in my life, yeah. and, and this is how firmly I believe this because of essentially street smarts. And um, it's just, it's, it's really helpful. I, I also want to say uh, for the listeners here, what, is, what would you tell them is the the first place to go if they want to find out more about you, like what's the, what's the direction to go to? Sure. Um, so if, if you just uh, go to MikeRitland.com, uh, that's kind of the hub that has everything else. The, the shirt that I'm wearing, teamdog.pet. Uh, that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's my online training that, uh, you know, is, is primarily what I'm focused on now from a dog standpoint, uh, other than the other projects that I've been doing. Uh, so teamdog.pet, MikeRitland.com, uh, Tricos.com on social media. It's just at MRitland uh, on Instagram, Tricos uh, or, or TeamDog, uh, Google searching, either one of those. <clears throat> Last but certainly not least, um, I had the uh, distinct honor and privilege of being a part of founding uh, the Warrior Dog Foundation back in 2010. Uh, where we've at this point taken in almost 200 dogs in the last 10 years of, uh, and these are all dogs, mind you, that uh, you know are ones that uh, that are they're kind of the Hannibal Lecters of of the dog sure. world. You know, they're they're ones that were going to be euthanized uh, if if we didn't take them. So there are a handful. Uh, most of the dogs that I've been bit by um, outside of the equipment and and unexpectedly from my standpoint uh, are, are most of those dogs. Uh, but it's something we're very proud and, and passionate about. And, and so warriordogfoundation.org uh, is where you can check that out and, uh, and hopefully help support uh, the cause. Because like I said, we, we are kind of the last, uh, last ditch effort for, for all of the dogs. They'd, they'd all have been put to sleep if we hadn't taken them. And, and we take them from uh, police departments, military units, uh, federal law enforcement, uh, customs, border patrol, you name it. So uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of dogs have come through, and, and we've been able to rehome some of them, reunite some of them with their handlers, um, you know, or at a minimum at least give them, uh, you know, kind of the out-to-pasture, out you know, type of, uh, type of environment and let them just be a dog and, and live out their life the way they need to. But. Well, brother, thank you for your mission. Uh, I'm a dog lover myself, so thank, thank yeah. you for that. Thank you for your service to this country. Thank you for your, your uh, brutal honesty that we all need to hear. And thank you for driving three hours yeah. up here, man. I, I, I appreciate it. And I hope that uh, you guys comment below if you want to see more Mike. And I hope that we get to do this many, many more times over the years. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, stoked to see you start a podcast. It's awesome. Heck yeah, brother. Yeah. Appreciate you. All right. See you guys. Thank you.